Good morning and uh, thank you once again for the privilege of being able to uh, speak here. Uh, we've just finished a, a, a Bible conference last yesterday and you might think they're a new idea but let me tell you they're not. I'm going to tell you because it, it actually ties in quite well with what I'll be speaking about today and, and the <laughs> what brought those things about. Um, so it'll just be a, a reflection that these things are not new. not new. I will be continuing my series through Passion Week. So we've dealt with Sabbath, the Sabbath day before Easter, which was when Mary anointed our Lord. The triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday. Then we've dealt with the Monday where the temple was cleansed and the cursing of the fig tree because Israel did not recognise the coming of the Messiah. We're now at Tuesday, Easter Tuesday. Okay, not the Tuesday after Easter, but the Tuesday before Easter. Okay, so that's to get an idea of where we're at. It's Tuesday and things are happening in the temple. Before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, <coughs> we ask you now that you might open our hearts and minds and our eyes to see and our ears to, to hear that, Lord, your truth might come to each one of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's Tuesday and things are happening in the temple. Now what's happening in the temple is that there is what we would almost consider a Bible conference going on. Right? And this was not an unusual event. This happened every Passover. Now, the temple consisted of lots of different bits. We had the temple proper. Okay, you know, that was the building with the Holy of Holies and the altar and the the, the tables and the, all that sort of stuff. But that was small, relatively speaking, compared with the rest of the Temple Mount. When you get up on the Temple Mount, you realise this place is huge. It's enormous. And most of it is flat, open space. You could assemble thousands and thousands of people up on the Temple Mount and they would all be considered to be in the Temple okay so when you hear he was in the Temple and we'll be looking at um, Matthew Matthew chapter 21 Matthew chapter 21 and starting at verse 23 so it's Matthew 21 starting at verse 23 and it says and when he was come into the temple. So we're not talking about the bit where the sacrifices were done and where the, the incense was burnt. We're talking about the temple mount because that was also considered to be in the temple. Now around the edge of the temple, around the edge of the temple mount, there's these, they call them porches, colonnades. You could almost call them a veranda. Right? Now, all the way around the Temple Mount, what that meant was if it was cold, especially, say, in the morning, you'd go over to one side and the sun was slanting in there. It was a nice warm spot to start doing things. But on the other hand, if it was hot, you could go to a spot where it was shady. And if it was raining, you'd be kept dry. These were the public access areas under shelter in the temple area and this was an area also which was referred to as the court of the women now it wasn't just for women but it meant that women and children and ordinary folk could come so this was this was the public access this was the the general admission area this was the cheap seats this was a place that ordinary men and women could come into the temple. Didn't have to be learned, didn't have to be special. 
This was just for us folks could come into the temple. And every Passover, in these porches and colonnades, people would teach. The rabbis would gather and they would teach. Now, some of it would be almost like preaching, but most of it was a dis- would be a discussion. And the rabbis would gather and one would, someone would pose a question to a rabbi. And, you know, if you were an old, established, respected rabbi, you would be sitting there and they, they all sat. The people would stand, but the rabbis would sit. And, you know, you might be sitting there with a group of young, up-and-coming rabbis and a question would be posed perhaps about cleansing or about the law or about how something should be done and the old guy would look over at the young fellow and he would say Rabbi Frank what's your opinion on this <laughs> now if Rabbi Frank hadn't got his his act together and wasn't ready he would be looking very silly <coughs> but if he could answer wisely if he could answer discreetly and if he could answer with intelligence His standing was lifted amongst the people. And in fact, let's say you were from uh, Capernaum and, you know, uh, your rabbi had fallen sick or perhaps died or moved away. You would come down to this time at Passover and you would look at the young rabbis who were answering. And you would perhaps say to a friend of yours, you know... That Rabbi Eddie, he's not bad. Maybe we should invite him up to Capernaum. He'd, he'd make a good addition to our synagogue. So it was a, it was a ter- very important time. You know, this was also not the first time Jesus was involved in this situation. If you think carefully, look back at the book of Luke. Some of you might be thinking, ah, yes. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Luke 2, 41. It says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. When they had fulfilled the days, they returned. The child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him amongst their kinfolk and acquaintance. When they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass after three days that they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. Now, what had happened in this situation was that the family had gone up to Jerusalem for Passover and they had just done the bare minimum. Now the Passover week and the time surrounding Passover was much bigger than the bare number of days allotted in the law of Moses. But they had kept the law doing the minimum time necessary and then it headed off. But the teaching and the instruction continued day after day in the temple And there was Jesus in the same place as we find him today. Teaching and listening in the temple. And of course we can tell that this must have occurred in the court of the women because he was 12. He would not have been allowed access to the court of the men until he was 13. So these teachings were happening in the public area, the open court of the women for people And we have Jesus teaching. Now the other thing about this, you have to realise that there was a bit of a popularity contest would have been happening. If you were dull and boring, you know, you might end up finding you were teaching to the palm trees. But if you were interesting and if people wanted to hear you, the crowd would be assembled around you. And if there was a really good argument going on between two rabbis, everybody would be listening in to hear what they were doing. (coughs) 
And as verse 23 back in Matthew, and as, as he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou things? And who gave thee this authority? Now, on one hand, this is a reasonable question. As in, not everybody could just set up shop in the temple. And they were saying, well, who gave you authority? Who, who said you could teach here? But on the other hand, this was an attempt to shut him down. And it revolved around the question of authority. What gives you the right to say these things? And when, you know, there's a, there's a good question here for us. What gives us... What gives me <coughs> the right to stand up here behind this pulpit and say these things? Where do I get that authority from? Well, my authority right now is actually a derived authority because Pastor Frank said I could. Who gave me the authority to stand here? Well, he did. That's a derived authority. We understand derived authority. Uh, the classic is, is of a, a, a minister when they marry someone. You know, those uh, by the authority vested in me by the state of Victoria? Okay, that's derived authority. Someone else has said you can do this. Um, I work in an organisation which runs on derived authority. What gives me the right to go and grab someone and put them in cuffs and drag them off to jail? Well, the Chief Commissioner said I could. It, that's what it really amounts to. It's derived authority. Uh, Jesus understood derived authority, and it's, it's mentioned in Scripture. Consider the, the, um, the situation of the Roman centurion who, who asked Jesus to heal his servant. For he says to him in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 8, I also am a man under authority. You know, what's the authority of the Roman centurion? Well, it's a derived authority from the Roman Senate. You know, remember you, you see the pictures of the Roman guys walking around with those little standards, those placards? It's got SPQR on it. That, that's an acronym. It stands for the Senate and the Roman people. That was their authority. You carry one of those, you have the authority of the Senate derived from them. That's one sort of authority, derived authority. There's another sort of authority, and that is inherent authority. You have an authority simply because of who you are. Now, a lot of you know about this, but you haven't thought of it in that sort of sense. Because when you're a parent, what is the ultimate authority that you have to your child, especially when they're little? They go, I don't want, why should I have to go to bed? Why should I have to eat my veggies? Why should I have to do this? And you think about it, because I know you've all said it. The answer that you give is, because I say so. You know what that is? That's inherent authority. You're saying, because of who I am, I get to tell you what to do. That is inherent authority. Okay, so there are the two sorts of authority. Inherent authority, derived authority. Uh, what sort of authority did a prophet have? Did a prophet have inherent authority or did they have derived authority? Well, in fact, they have derived authority, a prophet. Because consider, go right back to the start. Go back to the case of Moses standing before Pharaoh. He said, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go. That is derived authority. He didn't say, because I say it. He said, because God says it, you, ha you have to do these things. And that consistently 
was the message that the prophets would bring, they would say, thus saith the Lord God, you should or you should not, or the nation must. It's derived authority. Okay? What sort of authority did Jesus have? Now, the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees were asking him, who gave you your authority? How did you derive your authority? And he answers, well, his answer concerns the forerunner for him, but that wasn't his authority. We'll come back to his answer in a moment, but I want you to consider something about Jesus' authority. We're in Matthew. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5. Look at something about him, about Jesus. Jesus' authority. Matthew chapter 5. We'll start, I'll, I'll, I'm going to start verse 22, but I'm going to jump down to some other verses. Verse 21 says, Ye have heard. But verse 22 starts, But I say unto you, Verse 27, ye have heard. Verse 28, but I say unto you. Verse 31, it hath been said. Verse 33, ye have heard. Verse 32, but I say unto you. Verse 34, but I say unto you. Verse 38, ye have heard it was said. Verse 39, but I say unto you. Verse 43, but ye have heard it said. And verse 44, but I say unto you. You know something? That is not derived authority. That is inherent authority. He's saying, Jesus comes up to the people and he says, this is what's been taught previously, but I say. Now that's an inherent authority. That is authority because of who he was. He said these things. The authority of Jesus was not based upon someone else's authority. It was based upon his own. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 7, verse 29, same sort of area, it says of the people, verse 28, and it came to pass when Jesus ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Well, the scribes would say, oh, well, this guy says this and this guy says that. And maybe we ought to think maybe that this is a good idea. Jesus said, no, I'm telling you, this is the way it is. And that's it. He taught as one that had authority in and of himself. When you ask, what authority does Jesus have to say the things he does? He has the authority to control the wind. He has the power to still storms. He has the authority to forgive sins and the power to raise the dead. What more authority do you want? And yet they come to him and say, who gives you the right to do these things? Well, so he, he decides, okay, you want to know by what authority I do these things? Let's go back to the start of my ministry. Remember I got baptised by John the Baptist? He was the guy, you remember, who pointed at me and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? Well, what authority did he have? So in verse 24, we find Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you will tell me, I in like words will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? Simple question. John the Baptist, where did his authority come from? From heaven or from men? They got caught well and truly with this one, you know, if you're going to start arguing about who, where did people get their authority from, well, the question he's really asking them is, 
Can you recognize authority when you see it? There's no point in coming to me and saying, hey, what authority do you have if you don't have the ability to know authority when you see it? So he says, can you recognize authority? Can you recognize the right to preach and to teach? John the Baptist, did he have authority or did he not? And they said, they reasoned with themselves saying, if we say to him from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? If we say of men, we fear the people for all hold John to be a prophet. They were caught. If they say, oh yes, we recognize that John the Baptist was from heaven and therefore he had the authority to anoint the Son of God, then, it, then Jesus would have said, well, why didn't you obey his teaching then? If we say, no, no, John was just a man, then the people are going to have a rock-throwing party because everybody knew that John the Baptist was a prophet. You know he says everybody? All, all people hold John to be a prophet? You know how far that went? That went right up to the king. The king knew John the Baptist was a prophet even though he cut his head off. That said that in early, in early part of his reign, Herod heard him gladly. That's a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell. Now, you know, we, we talk sometimes about um, the size of words. We cannot tell. That's, you know, um, how many? That's what, four or five syllables? Four syllables? It's a... I, I, I had a look at that, how long it is in Greek. It's four letters. Four letters. It's a tiny, tiny little thing. And basically what we've got is these people going, don't know. That's literally what it is. It's don't know. In, in two tiny little words. They're embarrassed. They're scuffling their sandals on the ground and going, don't know. Don't know. And he said, well then, I'm not going to tell you either. If you can't recognise John the Baptist's authority, you won't recognise mine. If you can't recognise the greatest prophet that ever lived, what makes anybody think you're going to recognise me? So, he then begins, this was... This was just the opening shots. He then begins to say, I'll give you another question. Now this business of asking and answering questions will be coming all the way through these passages. And it's a standard way of, of conducting arguments in the, the, uh, the ancient world. And we still use it today. I, ha I have taught entire classes using what's called the the Socratic method, which is basically to ask people questions. Okay? And the, the whole key to understanding the way it works is there's always two questions. Okay? The first question sets you up. And the second question knocks you down. Okay? It's a, it's a technique. And do you, do you want to know one of the masters of this? in the world today that lawyer Robinson if you think back a few years he used to run a program called hypothetical that was classic teaching of the, like the way the ancient world did it uh, and he's very good at it so, he's, so Jesus says in verse 28 but what think ye a certain man had two sons and came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he, and said, and he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Now which of the twain did the will of his father? He set them up with this hypothetical. Two sons, one father. Same message is given to both of them. Both of them, he says, go work today in the vineyard. One says, no, nah, not going to go. 
But afterwards he thinks, ah, yeah, Dad's probably right. I'll go and work in the vineyard. The other says, yep, I'll go, no problem. And then after a while he thinks, nah, I'm not going to go. Now which of the two did the will of the father? It's an obvious question with an obvious answer and they're stuck with having to give the correct answer which is the first not the one who said but the one who did not the one whose words were fair and kind and sweet but the one whose actions proved that he had the father's interests at heart <coughs> it's not a difficult question and then he says, Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say, I say unto you, that the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you, for John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him, and you, when you had seen it, repented not afterwards that you might believe him. Wow. You reckon he's setting himself on a collision course with authority? He is absolutely condemning the religious leaders of the day in front of witnesses. There's a crowd gathered. Already there would have been a crowd because everybody knew, hey, this young rabbi from Nazareth was someone special. When he started to teach in the in the in the synagogues, there was never a problem you know, getting, getting a crowd there. The problem was getting enough seats. If he came to the temple to teach, people showed up. And now in front of all these witnesses, he is accusing the religious leaders of being unable to tell a prophet when one's in their midst and not obeying a prophet when he's there in front of them and teaching them. And then he puts the tax collectors and the prostitutes as better moral examples than the religious leaders of the day. You know, when it says that they they desired to lay hands on him and they wanted to attack him, it's not surprising when you consider what he's done here, what he's called them. He says, tax cheats are more honest and prostitutes are more righteous than you lot. That's pretty, that's pretty heavy stuff, what he's saying. Now there's something interesting about these three parables that he gives. And they're all connected. And each one actually builds on the next one. Because the first one, he talks about a vineyard and two sons. The next one, he talks about a vineyard and the owner of the vineyard, who, who has servants who are treated badly. The third one talks about servants who are treated badly of a king. If you look at them, each, each parable contains an element of the one before it. Very, very clever and, 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 and uh, as, as a literary structure is, is quite remarkable. So, he's accused the leaders of, of being full of fair words, full of nice sounding statements, but lacking real righteousness. You know, it's the recognition of their need that marked the publicans and the harlots as being righteous and going into the kingdom of heaven first. The fact that those people recognised when John came preaching the way of righteousness that they were not righteous and needed help. The, the first step in the recognition of righteousness, the first step is to recognize you have a need. And the problem was that these people, 
They had the nice words, but they didn't have a recognition of a need. Some of you in various ways, shapes and forms may have been involved in what are collectively known as 12-step programs, all coming, stemming originally from the, the original Alcoholics Anonymous program. Do you know what the very first step is? If you don't, you've probably got a guess by now, it's to recognise you have a need you can't fix yourself. That's the very first step of any recovery program is to recognise you have a need. And the, the whole point was, John came in the way of righteousness and these people recognised they had a need. There is an old, old saying in, in uh, evangelism work. And it's the, it's the saying is, you've got to get them lost before you can get them saved. A person who does not believe that there's anything wrong with them will never go to a doctor. A person who believes that their car is running fine will never take it to a mechanic. And a person who believes that they're fine before God and they're right and they don't need anybody's help to live their life will never come in repentance before God. They won't do it because they don't see a need. And this was the first problem that the scribes and the Pharisees had was they didn't see they had a need. Now, I, I love the work you were doing up in Cos. I think that's really great. But everybody who walks into that treatment centre recognises they have a need. You can't work and help people to recover till they realise they have a problem. They had the fine words and the fancy sayings, but, you know, blossoms and buds aren't fruit. And the fruit of righteousness comes starts with repentance. So, he then goes on to another parable. Verse 33, he says, Here another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went to a far country. When the time of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. Last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize on his inheritance. They caught him, cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do to these husbandmen? So, okay, he's posed a question. It's interesting. Again, he gets these people... He poses the parable. He says, this is the story. What will the Lord of that vineyard do? Verse 41, and they say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men, will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Again, this is the only answer possible. No person who's done all that work and prepared everything and then is cheated out of their rightful due is going to just walk away from it. Verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Again, out of their own mouths they are condemned. 
By giving a truthful answer, they are condemned themselves. Now, it's, it's interesting. That verse 42. Did you never read in the Scriptures? Well, of course they would have read it in the Scriptures. They would have read that. They may have wondered what it meant. Why do you reckon he chose that verse? That could have been lots of others. That is Psalm 118. So let's have a look at Psalm 118. Say Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. You think, yeah, okay, that's, that's fine. Now just drop your eyes down two verses. Verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That sounds familiar? Do you know what? Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, is in Hebrew. Hosanna. Yeah. This was the verse that the children were calling out in the temple two days earlier. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Oh yeah, there was a reason why he chose this verse. Because this was the passage that the children had been calling out as he came into the temple. And he's saying, remember? Remember what the kids were saying a couple of days ago? This is happening right now. Right now. The children have a better grip of the scriptures than the teachers of Israel. The kids calling out as I came in understood their scriptures better than you do. Have you never read? Hasn't it ever come up before that the stone which the builders rejected? Now there's a, there's a story about this. And I don't know if it's completely accurate, but it does fit. When they were building the temple, you know, it was a prefab job, okay? They quarried all the stones, most of them under the temple mount itself. They quarried the stones away from site and then dragged them up to the temple and assembled it up. And there were no adjustments being made. All the stones were made to fit before they, they got there. And they just brought them in and assembled it up, you know, a bit like Lego. Okay? Well, there was one stone that was dragged up there that was a weird shape, though the story goes. And no one could figure out where it fitted. And someone said, ah, oh, it's a mistake. They've sent us the wrong stone. And they threw it over the edge of the Temple Mount and it rolled down into the Kedron Valley. And when they got right to the finish of it, they realised they needed one particularly oddly shaped stone to fit in and lock the whole thing to go together in the corner. And they realised, oh, it's that one that we threw away. <laughs> That's the one we need. They had to go down and drag it all up and put it back in to make it work. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and is marvellous in our eyes. So the story about the construction of the temple had become a proverb that the thing which people threw away was actually the most important, was actually the most vital. And so he says, have you never read? Don't you understand the thing which the builders rejected? That's me! Is the most important. And this is God's doing. 
and is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about us now. That's what it is. If you ever wanted an example of the prediction or the description of the church before it was created, before Pentecost, this is it. The kingdom of God will be taken from you and will be given to someone who will give God what he wants. A people who will repent and worship him. And then he says, and by the way, that stone that you rejected, whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That is a prediction that right now, people are tripping over Jesus. He's a stumbling stone. He's a rock of offense. People don't like it. But one day, he will be a stone which will fill the whole world and grind his enemies to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. Oh, no kidding! <laughs> oh really? <laughs> you worked that out all by yourself, did you, Sherlock? That was really, you know... <laughs> like you couldn't tell? When they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, for they took him as a prophet, quite correctly. The multitude who had recognised John the Baptist also said, this guy is something special. And the priest and the Pharisees said, we, we can't go and grab him. We've got a temple full of people, thousands and thousands of people who are listening to him. We can't take him. The first problem the scribes and the Pharisees had, we said, was that they did not recognise their need. The second thing was they did not recognise the authority that was in front of them. They could not recognise they had a need to repent and be saved and they could not recognise the authority of the one who had come. Here was the son come to the vineyard to get what was due his father and they would not recognise his authority. There's one more parable which we'll close with. Start of verse 20, uh, chapter 22, And Jesus answered and spake unto them by parables. Now who's the them? It's not the scribes. The them is the people. He's now turned from talking to the religious rulers and he talks to the people. And he spake unto them by parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And sent forth his servants to call them, and they that they called them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. And he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. They made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. When the king thereof, when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid them to the marriage. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both good and both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how comest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said unto the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness, for there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. He's speaking now to the people. Stop talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, you don't think you need me? 
You won't listen to me because you won't res listen to my won't respect my authority. Now I'll talk to the people who will. And he says to them, "There's there's a king who making a marriage for his son, and." He sends forth the message saying everything is ready. The oxen are dead, sitting on the spit. Whole, whole roast ox on a spit. Now you've got, you got to love a wedding. You've got to love a barbecue when they say, and the main course is whole roast ox on a spit. The oxen are killed, the fatlings are cooking. Everything's ready, come. And they say, no, not interested. Not, I've got better things to do. Think of anything better to do than go to a wedding reception? Really, I, I, I have trouble thinking of anything better that I'd like to do than go to a wedding. I, I reckon they're great. They're wonderful. I, I remember I went to a uh, friend of mine's wedding. He's a Greek lad. There was like 450 of his closest friends there at the wedding. Now, I've actually yet to be invited to an Italian wedding. I'm still waiting for one of those. But let me tell you, when you go to a Greek wedding, they know how to party. It, it, was, it was just amazing. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a serious wedding party that's happening. And not only did they not respond to the invitation... They killed the messenger who told them? These people, ungrateful, spiteful. And, and Jesus says to the people, what, what sort of a reaction is that? So he sends, so after he deals with these people, he sends forth messengers and said, invite everybody. Everybody, anybody, I want this wedding full. I don't care who they are, invite them in. It's interesting that when Luke tells this, this parable, he says, go out in the highways and byways and compel them to come in. It's, it's the picture of servants going out and grabbing someone and saying, you, you're doing anything right now? Well, no, well, come here dragging them in and pushing them into the feast. And, he's, and the wedding was furnished with guests. The first problem with the scribes and the Pharisees was they would not realise they had a need. The second problem was they would not accept the authority of the son when he came. And the third one is they would not accept the grace that was offered to them with a free entry into the wedding feast. You think people have changed? No, they haven't. The problem with people today is they don't see they have a need. The second problem is they won't accept the authority of Jesus Christ the Son when He comes. And the third problem is they won't accept the free offer of grace that is made to come into the wedding feast. That's the problem with people today. Now it's interesting there, they talk about a, a wedding garment. Apparently it was the, not only when you went to the wedding feast did you get a free feed, you got to change your clothes as well. They give you a, a, a tunic to wear. So you, not only did you get, uh, you know, the, uh, the meal, but you got a, some clothes as well. When, when I went to my daughter's wedding in Africa, I learned something about wedding clothes. And it makes me understand this a little bit better. Those of you who may have seen the pictures of Jenny's wedding will notice the, the, the dresses that the bridesmaids wore. Beautiful blue and white pattern on there. And, and Jenny had a little belt of it on her wedding dress and uh, the other brides, some of the brides had it round the base. In, in Africa, you go to a shop that sells cloth, okay? And 
they will have little samples of cloth up on the, the wall and it will have, it had on there, <coughs> Parry de Avis wedding and a little piece of that cloth. And there were all these pieces of cloth stuck up there so you could go and you could say, oh, I'm going to this wedding and they would have the sample of the cloth that would be used on the bridesmaids and frequently on the bride. And often the whole family would deck themselves out in the same pattern. And let me tell you, these are not subtle patterns either. They are very bright and very vibrant. Jenny's one in blue and white was considered very sedate and, and very uh, um, sombre and uh, quite conservative. Some of the other ones there were in purple and yellow and green pattern for a wedding. And the entire wedding party, the bride, even the groom would have a shirt of that colour, that pattern. The bride, the mother and the father of the bride, the mother and father of the groom, the bridesmaids, the groomsmen, and a whole bunch of the guests would all be decked out in the same pattern of the wedding garment. Now, if you wore a different pattern, a different colour, you stood out like a sore thumb. You really, really stood out. And that, I think, is a little bit of an idea of what this problem was with the man who didn't have on the wedding garment. He, it wasn't a subtle thing that was being said here. This guy really stood out that he wasn't wearing the right stuff, the right pattern. Now, why was he tossed out? Wasn't the invitation open to everybody? If the invitation is, come, for all is prepared, why was he given the boot? Because you had to go in the right way. The invitation is open to all, but only through the front door. This guy, up over the back fence, snuck in. And the, the king, who was running the wedding feast, said, no, the invitation is open to all, but you go through the front door and you register, so to speak. You don't just wander in. There are those who think they'll be able to get over the back wall into heaven. It's not going to happen. If you don't have on the right wedding garment. I can tell you what the right wedding garment is. It's fine linen, white and clean, which is the righteousness of the saints given to them who have accepted and had their faith in Christ. They have the right garment on. They have the right clothing on. They are accepted into the wedding. They've come in through the front door. They've registered. They've signed the book at the front. And they are part of the wedding feast. For those who think, oh, I can just slip in. You know, sort of like, uh, you know, like I'll, I'll walk in between the two big guys and no one will notice me. The king says, friend, friend, <laughs> buddy, mate, what are you doing here? What are you, what are you, why are you here? Go away. You're not part of this gathering. And the servants throw him out. What was the problem? didn't see their need they didn't recognize the authority of Jesus they didn't want to accept the grace that was being offered and thought they could do it themselves you go out there and there's a world of people who think the same thing they think I don't need this I don't accept that Jesus Christ has done anything for me. 
I'm not going to take God's offer and if I do need to get into heaven, I'll sneak in the back way. And he says, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called to the wedding. Many are called by the servants coming into the highways and byways and saying, come on in. But few are chosen to wear the wedding garment to be brought to come in. The religious leaders of Jesus' day could not see these things. They were the blind leading the blind. They were people who had studied all their lives in the scripture and yet understood nothing. They had learnt of the details of the law but had misunderstood righteousness and justice and mercy. They had heard the preaching of John the Baptist, the most powerful, greatest prophet that had ever lived and had not understood a word of it. They had been privileged to listen to the words coming from the lips of the Son of God himself and had not understood it. They had refused the offer of grace that was being made to them because they believed they could do it themselves and sneak in the back way. Today, you reckon you're going to sneak in the back way? You reckon maybe that, oh, I don't need that grace because I'm pretty good. I'm better than some people. I'm better than a few people. I've got to be better than somebody. The message that Jesus gives rings down through the ages to today. There's a world out there who believes it does not need the gospel. But one day, those who have refused to listen will find themselves in outer darkness and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You see, God's a very generous God. Did you know God's generous? And if you ask for something, He'll give it to you. If you ask for mercy and grace and forgiveness, He'll give it to you. But if you say, I don't need you, I'll do it myself, He'll give you that too. An eternity without Him. You ask for that, He'll give it to you. In a place that's dark and friendless, lonely and miserable because you'll be there by yourself. This is the start of the teaching that Jesus did in the temple. Next time I come, I'll, I'll go on to the other things that were happening. But why did Jesus start with this? Because this is the most important. This is vital. This is the foundation. This is the basic. This is the number one thing. If the people who came to listen to him in the temple understood nothing else of what he taught, all the great prophecies he would give and all the wonderful teachings he would give and how he would explain things about what was going to happen in the future, if they understood none of that, they needed to understand this, that there's a need a desperate need that there is grace available to those who will reach out for it and that there is no other way than the way that is offered by Jesus Christ. If today you've been coasting along and thinking, yeah, I can, I can get away with this, you can't. You can't. There's an old saying, you know, you can run, but you can't hide. Sooner or later, you will come face to face with the king. You will go, friend, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? You don't belong. 
Today is the day to get things right with God. If you need to, come and talk to me. Come and talk to Pastor Frank. Come and talk to us. We'll be delighted to get your invitation to the wedding engraved, printed and in your hand. Because the invitation is in here. And it says, whomsoever will may come.